0: This morning, we read from Holy Scripture in John chapter 6. John chapter 6. This is, we're going to read the portion of this that follows after Jesus' feeding of the multitudes, which feeding was a miracle. We'll begin reading with verse 22 and read through verse 59, 22 through 59, John 6. The day following, when the people which stood on the other side of the sea saw that there was none other boat there, save that one whereinto his disciples were entered, and that Jesus went not with his disciples into the boat, but that his disciples were gone away alone, albeit there came other boats from Tiberias nigh unto the place where they did eat bread. After that the Lord had given thanks. When the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there, neither his disciples, they also took shipping and came to Capernaum, seeking for Jesus. And when they had found him on the other side of the sea, they said unto him, Rabbi, when camest thou hither? Jesus answered them and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, ye seek me, not because ye saw the miracles, but because ye did eat of the loaves and were filled." Labor not for the meat which perisheth, but for that meat which endureth unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you, for him hath God the Father sealed. Then said they unto him, What shall we do, that we might work the works of God? Jesus answered and said unto them, This is the work of God, that ye believe on him whom he has sent. They said therefore unto him, What sign showest thou then, that we may see and believe thee? What dost thou work? Our fathers did eat manna in the desert, as it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Moses gave you not that bread from heaven, but my Father giveth you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he which cometh down from heaven and giveth life unto the world. Then said they unto him, Lord, evermore give us this bread. And Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. But I said unto you, that ye also have seen me, and believe not. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. For I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will which hath sent me, that of all which he hath given me I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. And this is the will of him that sent me, that every one which seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. The Jews then murmured at him, because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. And they said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he saith, I came down from heaven? Jesus therefore answered and said unto them, Murmur not among yourselves. No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me. Draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall be all taught of God. Every man therefore that hath heard and hath learned of the Father cometh unto me. Not that any man hath seen the Father, save, that, save he which is of God, he hath seen the Father. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me hath everlasting life. I am that bread of life. Your fathers did eat manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which cometh down from heaven, that a man may eat thereof and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. The Jews therefore strove among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? as the living Father has sent me, and I live by the Father. He that eateth me, even he shall live by me. This is that bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers did eat manna and are dead. He that eateth of this bread shall live forever. These things said he in the synagogue, as he taught in Capernaum. we read that far in God's holy word. We consider this morning the instruction of the Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 29. Lord's Day 29. Do then the bread and wine become the very body and blood of Christ? Not at all. But as the water in baptism is not changed into the blood of Christ, neither is the washing away of sin itself, being only the sign and confirmation thereof appointed of God, So the bread in the Lord's Supper is not changed into the very body of Christ, though agreeably to the nature and properties of sacraments it is called the body of Christ. Why then doth Christ call the bread his body, and the cup his blood, or the new covenant in his blood, and Paul the communion of the body and blood of Christ? Christ speaks thus not without great reason. Namely, not only to teach us that as bread and wine support this temporal life, so His crucified body and shed blood are the true meat and drink whereby our souls are fed to eternal life, but more especially by these visible signs and pledges to assure us that we are as really partakers of His true body and blood by the operation of the Holy Ghost as we receive by the mouths of our bodies these holy signs in remembrance of Him, and that all His sufferings and obedience are as certainly ours as if we had in our own persons suffered and made satisfaction for our sins to God. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, you will probably notice that there is some overlap or even repetition in the Heidelberg Catechism's treatment of the Lord's Supper. We considered last time, when we considered Lord's Day 28, the main idea, which is that the Supper, the Lord's Supper, is a sacrament like baptism, but the main element of the sacrament, the main idea of the sacrament is that it's a sacrament of eating and drinking, a sacrament of supper, a sacrament of communion and fellowship. And in that regard, we certainly took note of how we partake in that sacrament, not with physical mouths and hands, but spiritual ones, and that which we eat and drink is our Lord Jesus Christ. So from that point of view, There is nothing new said in Lord's Day 29. Even though we will be emphasizing further what we eat and drink in the sacrament and how we eat and drink in the sacrament. But what separates Lord's Day 29 from Lord's Day 28 really is the particular subject matter which is what's often called theologically the sacramental union. The sacramental union, a fitting name, because we're talking about a sacrament of communion, and we know that Christ is communicated in the sacrament. So there's this term called sacramental union that you may find if you do some reading. And what it refers to is what's being talked about here in Lord's Day 29. So if you want to know about the sacramental union, you can come right to this Lord's Day and learn all about it. But what are we talking about? What we're talking about is this. The union, that is the relationship, between the sign and the reality. Or the relationship between the sign and the thing signified. In other words, what's the relationship, or the union, what's the relationship between the sign of the bread and the wine and everything else associated with the sign, and the reality, which is Christ? More specifically, the broken body of Christ and the shed blood of Christ. What's that relationship? Now, the catechism spends an entire Lord's Day on this and part of a next one because there has been, as is often the case throughout the history of the church, a great, great controversy over the Lord's Supper. It's always amazing, actually, how many controversies pertain to the sacraments themselves. That's true even in our own history. 1953 was really about baptism. Well, why is that? Because sacraments teach something. We can learn so much theology from the sacraments themselves. So, the catechism gets into this, not simply to be correct and right and precise, but because there's theology at stake. There's truth at stake. We learn from the sacrament about God and His salvation and grace and so many other things. And there was, at the time of Reformation, by God's providence, a great, great controversy over the Lord's Supper, and that controversy centered on the issue of the sacramental union. And you may say that there's, I'm simplifying now, really three positions. One on the right, one on the left, and the reform position, which is right down the middle, and the correct one. The position on one side was the position that The sacramental union is that the sign is the the thing signified. The sign is the reality. That when Jesus says, this is my body, that word is meant that the sign, the bread and the wine is actually the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ to the extent that every single person who eats and drinks the sign receives the the reality. And that was the basic position of the Roman Catholic Church and that was the basic position of the Lutheran Church, part of the Reformation. They were agreed that the relationship, the sacramental union, is that the sign is the reality. The only difference between the Lutheran position and the Catholic position was how they are the same. How they, the sign is the reality agreed that it is. Then on the other side was this position of the sacramental union. And this was the position that was associated with the Anabaptists. Again, part of the Reformation. It was not part of the Catholic Church. It was the Anabaptists, also often associated with the Reformer Zwingli. And that was the position, really, that there is no relationship whatsoever. That what's going on in the Lord's Supper is that as we eat and drink the sign, as we take the sign in, it's a memorial. There's a remembrance. There's a certain celebration that's going on. And they especially focused on the words that Jesus taught. Do this in remembrance of Me. See, they say it's a remembrance. But the key part was it was a remembrance such that there really is no relationship to the sign and the reality itself. And because of that controversy, the reform had to get into Scripture and look into Scripture and look at theology and dig. And out of that came actually great development, and development especially with regard to the Spirit, with regard to the spiritual realm, with regard to faith. God used that controversy to help the church, and it's still helping the church develop in regards to its theology, with regard to Christ and our salvation. That position is, there is indeed a relationship. And we do indeed eat and drink Christ. There is that close a connection between the sign and the reality. But there's also a great difference. The sign is simply physical. It belongs to the physical realm. And the reality belongs to the spiritual realm. So that when we partake of the sign and we partake the way we're supposed to partake, then we also receive the reality. They're that closely connected. But it's not with regard to everyone who eats physically and drinks physically so that they receive the reality too, but it's only with regard to those who eat and drink by faith, that is, partake spiritually. So there is a union. But there's a spiritual connection there. And we eat and drink Christ spiritually. That, in essence, is the instruction of Lord's Day 29. And we're going to look at that a little bit closer this morning. Now, we're going to talk about eating and drinking Christ. And it's important for us to emphasize that. That the Reformed position, the solid Reformed position, the position that we may not change or alter that is so important is that in eating and drinking of the sacrament, we truly and really receive Christ Himself. In other words, the truth of the sacramental union is that there is such a close relationship between the sign and the reality that one who partakes, one who partakes in the only way he can partake of the sacrament, that is by faith, the one who partakes of the bread and the wine also partakes of Christ and really and truly eats and drinks Christ. That is the intimate and inseparable relationship between the sign. And the thing signified, the reality in the sacrament. The sign and reality, both of them, pertain to food and drink and eating and drinking that food and drink. When we look at the sacramental union, it's important for us to remember that the sign has several elements. In general, we may say it concerns a supper. We come here to eat supper even when we come to the sacrament, and even though we usually partake of the sacrament in the morning, that it's a supper. We gather around a table. There's plates and there's cups. And we take hand and mouth, and we eat and drink food. Now, other elements of the sign is that the food is broken. The bread is broken. It's bread and it's broken. And other elements of the sign is that there's wine, and it's poured out and it's distributed. It comes from one source, and yet we eat and drink it individually. Now, all those elements of the sign are related to the reality. But that reality then too is food and drink. The food is the broken body of Christ. The drink is the blood of Christ and it's taken in. Even as you take in with your hand and your mouth the one food and drink, so also something else is taking in the other food and drink. And if you simply want to understand as simply as you possibly can, the relationship between the sign and the reality, The easiest way to do that is to remember that the one is physical and the other is spiritual. That when we partake of the reality, it really is not at all physical. That we do not partake of the reality with our physical hand and mouth. Nor when we partake of the reality, does it have anything to do with our stomach digesting, ingesting, and then distributing the particles that we eat with our hand and our mouth. Nor is it really even physical food and drink. The entire business is spiritual, but it occurs with and through and by the physical partaking. There is a union. There is a connection. There is a relationship. And we may go back and review Lord's Day 28 in our thinking with regard to this union and how it's expressed. For example, notice this in question and answer 75. He feeds and nourishes my soul. Notice the emphasis upon feeding and nourishing my soul. That's the reality. The sign feeds and nourishes. My body. In the reality, our soul is nourished to everlasting life. Notice, everlasting life is to make a distinction between our physical earthly life, which ends to everlasting life with not bread and wine, but His crucified body and shed blood. That's repeated again in questions and answers 76 and 74. And usually the connection is with the word As. That this happens as the other happens, they happen together, they happen closely there 's that close a relationship in question and answer seventy nine even we read this: he assures us that, and the idea is as we eat and drink, we are as really partakers of his true body and blood, so there 's no doubt whatsoever what the reformed position is in fact. The Belgic Confession is even stronger and uses language that makes you sit up and think. Makes you sit up and go, wow, that's a pretty close relationship. In fact, even seems to intimate that our position is that of the Catholics and the Lutherans. Listen to the Belgic Confession. We are not. We make no mistake. We make no er error, error in doctrine. We are not when we say That what is eaten and drunk by us is, and now it's talking about the reality, the proper and natural body and the proper blood of Christ. That's astounding language. And it's really the same language Christ uses when in John 6, for example, He speaks about drinking His blood and eating His flesh. And this is what He's getting at when He says, this is My body. Do not separate the sign from the reality. Don't just say to yourself, well, somehow, vaguely, in some mysterious way, automatically, mystically, I partake of Christ in the sacrament." No, you partake of him in the sacrament, and it happens as you eat and drink. And understand, the reality has really nothing to do with the bread and wine, and that that's what nourishes and feeds and strengthens to everlasting life. No, it must be Christ himself. And Jesus emphasizes that. It's amazing how in the dispute, The Reformed were not allowed simply to dismiss a chunk of Scripture that say, well, what Jesus said, this is my body. And when Jesus insisted in John 6, you must eat and drink my body and blood. And and now, (laughs) keep in mind how shocking that language is. So shocking is that language that later on the church would be accused of cannibalism by those enemies that want to destroy them. Think of how shocking those words are in a day where supposedly it's good sanctified judgment, even holy, for Christians to become vegans and vegetarians and not eat meat. Now Jesus says, real Christians live by flesh, but not flesh of beef and flesh of chickens, flesh of me, my flesh. And think of how shocking those words are were even to Jews who had been taught their whole life where it was part of the law of Moses that even with regard to eating flesh, they couldn't eat all flesh, only some flesh, sanctified flesh, that was pointing to Christ, but it could never be mingled with blood. It couldn't be raw, it couldn't be rare, it couldn't be medium rare. And Jesus says, That only pertained to your physical life. Even that was just a sign. But now with regard to the reality, you will be eating flesh and drinking blood. Now Jesus, what he was getting at, was what he talked about when he talked about the sacrament being that of the New Covenant, the New Testament. There's a reference of that In Lord's Day 29, Why doth Christ call the bread His body, the cup His blood? Or the new covenant in His blood. Jesus was teaching something, even about the limitation of the pictures that were given to the Jews. Jesus was teaching that He is a universal Savior, that He's the Savior of all men, that He's the Savior that is not simply of Jews, and then only some Jews, but Gentiles, And he made that clear when in the diet of both Jew and Gentile, those who lived unto everlasting life would be fed flesh and blood. The sacramental union, therefore, is important. Think even of the words of the Apostle Paul who talks about it being the communion of the body and blood of Christ. We often think of communion that there's communion, and it's the sacrament of communion, because we all commune together. We all eat and drink together. And we know that there's a, 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 a fellowship, a, a communion that goes on there. But one, another reason it's called communion is because Jesus actually communicates Himself to us. And it's also important at this point to back up just a little bit, and this is going to be emphasized in a few Lord's Days, Let's remember the sacrament is that which strengthens and confirms faith. It doesn't impart it, it doesn't give it. Which means that the sacrament functions subordinate to something higher, something greater, something primary, which is the preaching of the gospel. So, when we talk about what we can learn from the sacrament and what we're being taught, It's worthwhile remembering right here that what we're saying about the sacrament also applies to the preaching of the Word. The only difference really is that in the preaching of the Word, the way we receive Christ is through our ears, through hearing. And that hearing also is not simply an external hearing with the ears, just like when we Eat and drink in the sacrament, we're not just mowing with our teeth and swallowing with our throat, but there's something else. There's something, that's just a picture of something else. The one thing, really, how we're taking in, we'll talk about that in just a few minutes, which is faith. So the hearing of the word also is received by faith. But the point that deserves emphasis here is that in the preaching of the gospel, what we really hear What we really take in, what we really receive, is Christ Himself. Oh, I know we refer to it as the Word of God. We have the preaching of the Word of God. But if you want to, for example, know why the Reformed, why this church, why your elders insist that I preach not what I want to preach, why they sit there and listen to what I have to say and compare it to the Word of God, or should be doing that, why the Reformed have insisted that what is preached is the Word of God is because that's what we're taking in. And when we hear that word, Word, we must remember that that's a reference to Christ. He is the Word. So remember that, even this morning, as I'm explaining the Catechism, And as we read the Word of God, what's really going on, what's really happening, is that you are partaking. Christ is communicating to you through your ears and through your eyes when you're reading the Word. But you are taking it in through faith, just like in the sacrament, Himself. You're not listening to me You're not hearing my words. And even if you consider that what you should be hearing and do hear is the Word of God, what you're really receiving is Christ Himself. We need to be reminded of that. Why all the emphasis? Why did God in His providence make sure that there was a controversy over this subject? It seems such a rather... Obscure subject, a rather fine subject, a rather difficult subject even. Why was there not only a Reformation that started in 1517 with the great Martin Luther, but God in his providence even saw to it that Luther erred, or the followers of Luther erred, so that there had to be subsequent Reformation. And then even in that Reformation, there was a whole other group, the Anabaptists, that split off. You ask, why, why all that? I could really answer that question from two points of view. Number one, there was an error in the church that had to be rooted out and dealt with, which said that every single person who partakes of the sign that eats of the Lord's Supper, and by implication there too, that sign is also what you say there holds for baptism, that is, everyone's also baptized. Everyone that receives the water on their head receives the reality. They actually receive Christ and all the benefits of Christ. They receive His forgiveness of sins. They receive His everlasting life. And when you look at the Scriptures, you see that's unbearable, that's intolerable. That's the false doctrine of common and universal grace. Anytime there's a common and universal grace, that grace is ineffectual grace. It is grace conditioned on the activity of man. It is no grace. It doesn't actually do anything. And even worse, really, everybody knows. You don't even have to argue about it. That there's many, many, many people that have received the sign in baptism and partake of the sign in the Lord's Supper, Mass, whatever you call it, who therefore would receive the reality but aren't saved. Their lies are Abominations. They're in hell. They're on the road to hell. They're condemned. God rejects them. God despises them. But they've taken in Christ. That's what that says. So there's a controversy. On the other hand, there's another part of the controversy that says it's really not important that you partake of Christ. It's important that you remember Him, celebrate Him. It's important that He have some sort of role in your life. That you gather together and eat and drink the sign and, and uh, remember what Christ did. But it, it's not really important that you take in Christ at all. And again, that's not Scripture. Jesus said, unless you take Me in, unless you ingest Me, and Me, not fond memories of Me, Me, unless you eat My flesh and drink My blood, You don't live. You're not living. And you won't be raised up the last day. There's all this instruction because this is God as strong as He possibly can say it. This is what you need. This is what you must have. This is what you live on. And nothing else. Let's remember that. Everything else that's related to it. Everything that's related to the sign. that's church and office bearers and office bearers to distribute it and forms that are read. And, well, knowing Scripture and understanding Scripture and being taught Scripture and the truth like we're doing now. All those are important. Don't get me wrong. The sacrament is only served in an instituted church. Without an instituted church, you cannot have the sacrament served. You must have office bearers. Even the preaching of the gospel The Apostle teaches us as clearly as it possibly can. You cannot hear the Word. In other words, you cannot even receive faith. Have faith. Faith is worked by hearing, unless there's a preacher. And you can't have a preacher unless he's called, unless he's sent. We don't minimize those things. We may do that. In fact, it's, again, helpful to remember that even in the sacrament, there's a variety of ways in which we are ingesting Christ. We're taking Him in as we read the form. That's the Word of God. That form is the Word of God. It's filled with the Word of God. In the preaching, that explains what's going on. In the Scriptures that we read, even in the words of Christ that are being pronounced, we're, we're ingesting Christ. But the point is, Christ is what you need. Even the sacrament is simply a means by which you receive Christ by faith. And understand, that's how we use the word means there too. It's a means of grace. That is, it's a means that God uses to distribute grace. It's a means that God uses to impart grace. But you receive it by faith. That's the means by which you receive it. The only means. That's the second point of the sermon. How now do you receive Christ? How do you take Him in? That we take Him in, there is no dispute in the Reformed camp. There we are, agreed, really with the Lutherans and the Roman Catholic Church. We must take in Christ. We agree. This is my body. We must have Christ. We must take Him in. But how? Automatically? When we partake of the sign and we say no. By faith. By faith. That's the spiritual instrument. And it functions, let's just understand this, the sacrament is teaching us, there should be no doubt about this whatsoever, This is why it's carved into tables. This do in remembrance of Me. And you ask, what does that mean? This do means eating and drinking at the sacrament. Now how do we do that? By faith. But understand, that's faith acting. It's faith taking in. And the Reformed, again, were not afraid to use very Very powerful language. Go to the Belgian Confession. I think I put it in the bulletin. Faith functions exactly like your hands and mouth do, and by implication, your throat, your stomach, and the rest of your body in taking in the bread and wine. The sacrament itself teaches us that. There should be no dispute about this whatsoever. How do you take in Christ? And the answer is there must be an instrument. In the preaching of the Word, it's the ears or the spiritual ears. It's actually both. The Reformed even insist on that. That the normal way we receive Christ in the preaching of the word is not simply through spiritual ears, but the spiritual ears, which is faith, function through the external ears. Well, same thing here, such as the union, that those things go together. But what's actually taking in Christ? The actual is faith. And it's functioning just like your teeth in your mouth. Just as your your hand is picking up something and putting it in your mouth and your mouth is chewing and then you swallow and then it goes into your body and it's digested. That's the way faith does function. And we may not be afraid to speak that way. Don't let anybody tell you that faith does nothing. Faith receives Christ. It's the only thing that receives Christ in the means of grace. Oh, oh then that's a condition to eternal life. That that You're saying that 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 I must do these things, or I starve. Answer: Yep, mm-hmm, that's exactly it. Try to live without bread and water. Try to live without bread and wine. Try to live without food and drink once, and then try to eat without your hands and your mouth being infected. It's not the way it works, is it? Oh yeah, there's exceptions. There's exceptions with the sacrament too. God is able to save someone without the sacrament. He does it with regard to baptism with children. Even some adults who aren't able to attend and partake. Not saying that. But look what it teaches. Look what it teaches as the way faith functions. Now why isn't that a condition to eternal life? After all, what we're eating and drinking is unto, and notice the word, to. Watch being made out of that word. Oh, you're saying it's to eternal life? Well, now it's really a condition. Not true. It's so simple, people. Look at your physical life. There's no doubt that you have to eat and drink to stay alive. No doubt you have to eat and drink or you die. But how are you able to eat and drink? In fact, you can even ask the question, why are you hungry? Why do you even need food and drink? Why do you need them? You see, if you're dead, you don't need them. If you're dead, you can't eat and drink. So the very fact that in life we're hungry, the very fact that in life we have a hand and a mouth that can take food in, and we have a body that can digest it, that's a picture of the spiritual realm. That those who eat and drink are already alive. If you weren't already alive, you couldn't eat and drink. That is, you already have faith. And that faith is a part of your life. It's part of what God gives you so that you can eat and drink. That's why it's not a condition. That alone is why it's a condition. And none of that takes away the fact, an important fact taught in the Reformation, that you must eat and drink. Without it, you die. And you must eat and drink Christ, not just bread and wine. Now is that clear or what? Only the living. Only the spiritually living. And let's understand that if you're spiritually alive, what you have is already eternal life. But it's an eternal life. And on this earth and in this earth, Christ makes very clear that that life is supported with Him. It's given by Him. The instruments by which we receive it are all given by Him. And that's not just faith, by the way. Christ is also the one who gives us a church, who gives us a preacher, who gives us office bearers that distribute it. He's the one that's given all these things. None of them are conditions to eternal life, but they are necessary. The necessary means God uses to feed and nourish that life, and the necessary means faith is by which we receive it. And these things are not that complicated. And let's remember what it means, too, when we say we receive Christ, because that, too, we can tend to understand really mystically or understand in only a wrong way. For some, it's just simply that just means I understand these things and know them. And there's truth to that. We understand and know them. You have to understand and know what's going on to receive. It's part of faith. It's why faith includes knowledge and assurance. But it means believing that that's actually what we'll receive is Christ. And it's, it includes believing that that's all I need. I don't need Christ and something else. It includes believing everything that I've just preached. It includes believing that the only way to receive Christ is by faith. And my faith is not a condition to receiving Him. Christ does not come to me and communicate Himself to me based on the worthiness of my faith. Or the exemplariness of my faith. Faith just simply receives. Faith believes. Faith believes that Christ does that in His grace. Not because I believe. Or on the basis of my believing. Or any of those things. Faith believes that it's not a work. That makes me worthy. It's not a work that God looks at and says, oh, that's good enough before He comes to me. Faith believes what I just taught you. That it exists because it's part of the new birth that Christ gave us. But receiving Christ and all of Christ means exactly that. When Christ is communicated to us, when Christ did that, He was reminding us of something. Do not limit the Lord's Supper simply to the benefit of the forgiveness of sins. Now that's a chief benefit, a great benefit, an unbelievable benefit. And it's buried right into the sign. You cannot eat and drink Christ unless it's broken bread and poured out wine. And as soon as you eat and drink, you should be thinking, yes, this is the Christ who died. And immediately, faith says, and why did he die? He himself was perfect. Why did he die? And faith says, because of my sins and what I did. But He's alive! It's not just broken bread. It's just not poured out wine. It's bread and wine that goes into my body and becomes part of me. It energizes me and it enlivens me. Which means that part becomes mine too. The life of Christ. Being saved. Eternal life isn't simply a matter of the forgiveness of sins. If it is, then you haven't received all of Christ. Oh, it's an important part of the Lord's Supper. We're going to be talking about that more in a few weeks. We're going to be asking the question, really interesting question actually, why if now the one thing I need to live is Jesus Christ, and I receive Him in the sacrament, and in the preaching of the Word, well, why then does the church come along in a certain instance to say, you may not partake. You may not have Christ. You are barred and banned from eating and drinking Him. And our thinking would say, well, pff, that's the last thing they need. Without that, they're going to starve. They're going to die. You're saying they're reprobate. Mm. Some important questions. But we'll get to those. Let's remember now that it's related to the fact that when we eat and drink Christ, we receive His life. And then we have to ask ourselves some questions about that life. Is that a life that lives in sin, wallows in sin? That ignores sin, rejects sin? And the answer is, of course not. And that's all built into the sacrament. It's all part of the sacrament. It's all taught in the sacrament. And there you see is the benefit. The benefit is everlasting life. Not in the sense now that I didn't have life, then I ate and drank and now I life. But just like the sign, no, I'm alive. But my life, especially in this world of sin, especially because I'm a sinner, especially because I still have a depraved nature, that life needs to be strengthened and sustained and kept. needs to be nourished. And the sacrament does that. That's the benefit of it. That's the benefit of it. But at the same time, that's the benefit of faith. That's what faith receives. That's what faith is taking in and that's what faith receives. And nothing else. The benefit isn't all of a sudden your life is going to be happy and joyful with all sorts of wonderful physical things that are going to come your way. The benefit is not that you will never starve to death physically or that you won't die. The benefit is not that you're going to have smooth sailing in life, easy to get a job, raise your children, go about... No! That's not what you need. It's just a distraction. That all pertains to the, just the bread and wine. You have another life. And it's the important life. It's the more important life. It's the life we ought to be concerned about. And that benefit comes by faith. By renouncing our sins and our wicked course of life if we're going to jump ahead a little bit. By saying, that's what I believe. I believe that's what's being signified. I believe that's for me as really as I'm taking in this bread and wine. I believe that Christ imparts to me Himself the forgiveness of sins in Him. I believe He imparts to me His life, His Spirit. And He's already done so by giving my faith. And that you see is the everlasting life. It's part of that life. And for that we give thanks. Amen. Let us pray. Well, Lord our God, we look forward to the day that we will partake of the sacrament again. And in so doing, we actually look forward to the day when the sacrament will no longer be necessary. When we have transisted through the great resurrection and even death into the spiritual realm of the new creation. When even faith changes because we see our Lord face-to-face and where we have been so freed from sin, it doesn't exist. It's not in our thoughts and hearts. We long for that day when we shall have our Lord Jesus Christ in that way. Until then, Lord, strengthen our faith and even use the sacrament for that, teaching us even that thy grace is not dependent upon our faith, but our faith is dependent upon thy grace. So, Lord, where our faith is weak, impart to us Thyself, not only through the preaching of the Word, but in the sacrament. And we pray that we may, therefore, also live thankful and holy lives before Thee, having ingested and having taken in our Lord Jesus Christ, Him we serve and worship, and praise Thee, our God, in Jesus' name, Amen.